0: The following sermon audio is from the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about the Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Okay, 1
1: Corinthians chapter 16, verses 12 through 24. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, the other brothers, to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We thank God for his holy word.
0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Just a note, um, before I forget, that on Easter morning, we are actually going to have some baptisms, which I'm really excited about. Uh, What better way to celebrate the birthday of the church than celebrating the new birth of some in our midst? Um, So I just want to mention that because if you are in the place where you have trusted Christ and have new life in him, but you haven't been baptized yet, I really invite you to come and talk to me. And there's still time for us to have the conversations that need to be had so that uh, you can partake in that as well. Uh, Let me pray for us before we get started. Our God, I just want to thank you for all that you're doing in our midst, the things that we notice and the things that we have no clue about. Thank you for gathering us all here this morning. And I thank you for your holy word. Lord, these, this, this book of, second, of uh, First Corinthians has been so, um, well, it's, it's taken up um, this whole last half of a year or more for us. And there's, uh, at least I hope for everyone, there's been some really memorable times, really passages that, that impacted us in ways we didn't expect. And I pray that the same would be true this morning. I pray that your spirit would be our true teacher and that you would change our lives because of what we see and hear in these words. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this morning's text, you may have noticed that we're kind of reminded, perhaps more than any other section in 1 Corinthians, that this is, after all, a letter we're reading. And so just like any personal correspondence, there's these seemingly disconnected details that are kind of crammed in at the end, like, oh yeah, say hi to mom, and you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, we see those sorts of details here, seemingly disconnected. But we know that every last word of a New Testament epistle is inspired by God. And so we trust that even today we can see in these closing remarks connections and and we can see reinforcements of of the things that we've already learned in this great epistle. If you remember, this letter sort of found its ethical center in chapter 13. Chapter 13, the love passage. A familiar passage beautifully puts practical feet on the often abstract concept of love. And in so doing, it really fully exposed the self-interest that's at work in Corinth and that's at work in most local churches. So it showed that it's perfectly possible to speak often of love and to go through the motions of love without actually possessing love for neighbor. And that ultimately shows that there's a lack of love for God. And it's out of that lack of love for God then that rivalries and selfish ambition and skewed sexuality and bad doctrine and subtle idolatries emerge. So in this final section of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul reminding them again of God's love for them and asking about their love for God. And he models and expresses and commends and commands love among the Corinthians in this passage. We've got a slide that we can put up just to show you how I'm organizing this passage for our digestion this morning. So you can see um, a decision of love. Uh, Apollo postpones his visit, a command of love, and it sort of fills out what does love look like when diligence is required. And There's a test of love. There's a way of love. There's a warning pertaining to loving God, and there's a blessing of love at the very end. So that's how we'll see the passage this morning. Let's start right in with verse 12. It says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Uh, A decision of love, I I called this, and and there's a question mark there because it's not completely apparent what's going on with Apollos, and some people would stick this verse with a section that we studied last week about Timothy. Some scholars think that Apollos was, he was a known and popular entity in Corinth, but Timothy was kind of an unknown, and so many might have wished that Apollos and not Timothy be sent to them next. So Paul is likely exhorting them to treat Timothy well, and he's explaining It was just impossible for Apollos to come right now. And this dynamic of the Corinthians kind of preferring Apollos, that shouldn't surprise us given how some in the church were dividing the church into camps and they were boasting things like, I follow Apollos. We saw that in the first chapters. And we read in Acts chapter 18 that Apollos was fervent in spirit and he was quite the eloquent communicator. So it was only natural that some of the arrogant and more image-oriented Corinthians quite preferred his presence to anyone else that Paul would send. They probably even preferred his presence to the beaten down and outwardly unimpressive Paul. But what they didn't understand was that Paul and Apollos wholeheartedly denied the very competition that these status games were trying to set up. Back in chapter three, we had read, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. So we see that any sort of personality cult surrounding Apollos or any other leader would be a denial of God himself as the designer and the source of all growth. And here at the end of the book, Paul somewhat rubs in their ridiculousness in this tribalistic thinking because he reveals just how closely he and Apollos are actually working together and coordinating their efforts. So Paul feels no rivalry with Apollos. He's certainly not holding Apollos back. In fact, he strongly urged Apollos to visit Corinth soon. And yet, Apollos isn't at all interested. Why? Is it merely that Apollos is busy? Or is it maybe because Apollos has heard about how how some at Corinth are boasting in their connection to him? I think that the tone of the text means we have to at least leave it as a possibility that Apollos is staying away out of disgust for what's going on. And perhaps the best way that he can love the Corinthians right now is to keep his distance until they start to think differently about their leaders. Well, next we get to a place where love is commanded. Verses 13 and 14 give the central exhortations for the text. They say, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. These verses are helpful because our notion of love is often so anemic. When we think of love, we think of, Soft speech and gentle behaviors and a relaxed demeanor. And sometimes if we don't have those external assurances, we can prematurely judge that, well, I don't think love is present here. But here we see Paul highlighting some very different expectations for love and what it can accomplish. And these, these commands have sort of a military tone about them. He says, be watchful. Now, there are a number of places in Scripture that speak of watchfulness. The Gospels use a metaphor of staying awake to make sure that you're waiting well for Christ's return. If you remember, Jesus told Peter, James, and John at Gethsemane, he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But even closer to our context here, if you remember back in chapter 15, Paul was confronting the Corinthians because they had let their culture dictate their own views about the future. And instead of clinging to the hope of their own resurrection and living like every moment counts for eternity, they were instead slumping into this sort of hedonistic mindset that said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They lacked an alertness and an active reflection on Christian doctrine. So Paul said, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, I wonder, are there ways in which our spiritual lethargy is causing us to sort of slide away from acting in ways that are consistent with our convictions? Are we going to get our beliefs from pop culture or from best selling supposedly Christian books or blogs that kind of start with their own philosophy and then paste in an ill fitting scripture reference here or there? Or are we deciding our lifestyles based on peer pressure? Like what other Christians are doing? Ah, the other Christians live that way. It must be okay. No, none of that fits with the watchfulness that he's commanding here. There's a watchfulness and awareness over yourselves and over the church. So be watchful. And also stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith, preserving the gospel, the historic faith. That's the only hope for our church or for any church. Some churches try to let their definitive stand be somewhere else, like not in the faith particularly, but we're gonna take our stand in caring for one another or we're gonna take our stand in serving the community, but they don't stand firm in the faith and so in the end, they end up as no more than a a do-gooders club that loses more and more steam each year. It's what Paul elsewhere calls a form of godliness without power because only the faith once for all, handed down to the apostles. Only that can bring us to God, and only that can bind us together as a community. So stand firm in the faith. And next, we have this surprising little exhortation Act like men. Now, with this letter being addressed to all the saints at Corinth, brothers and sisters, this instruction might seem a little confusing. But remember how I said that. Um, this section is employing military terms, so be watchful, stand firm, be strong. Well, it's in that context that we should understand act like men. You can imagine the situation where an enemy army is drawing near and, um, for, and there's going to be a battle. You're on the eve of battle. Think of what courage, what sacrifice, what sense of solemn responsibility that requires. There are times when life in the local church calls for just such a mindset. And while armies back then and armies now are comprised primarily of men, these qualities certainly pertain to women as well. You can think of biblical examples. Um, You can think of the fearless sobriety of Deborah, as well as the military persistence of Barak. Or better yet, you can think of J.L. I don't know if you've read about her in Judges, but she had quite the courage And cunning in assassinating a wicked general named Sisera. You can think of the courage of the two men who spied out Jericho as well as the bold risk-taking of Rahab who hid them. You can think of Mordecai who would not bow down to the evil Haman and who helped Esther to see the critical nature of the hour. But you can also think of Esther who risked her life to enlist the help of the most powerful man in the world at that time. So, this is for men and women, and Christians serve a Savior who very much acted like a man and rose to the occasion. He had that, that militant awareness and courage, and he put himself in harm's way, and he saved his people. I'm talking about Jesus, and we in his image take on that same characteristic as self-sacrificial protectors of the helpless and protectors of the church so included in act like men is certainly do the necessary hard things that demand courage but also there's a command here to be mature because the main contrast isn't with women at all but rather act like men not like little boys and love plays a big role in this like little boys they they want to act like men right they want to like they want to be considered men but they're not mature enough yet to see past selfish um selfish you know a self-centered concern and, and they have sort of a short-term mindset. What's going to gratify me? You know, if it, doesn't, um, if it doesn't sound like fun for the long haul, then little boys can't really persevere in it, can they? Well, back in chapter 13, verse 11, Paul had reflected that when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So the main thrust here is don't be children. Be courageous, loving adults who take sacrificial responsibility for themselves and for the church. And next, be strong. Be strong, not flimsy, not emotionally weak, not easily discouraged when things are messy. If the dirty church is going to become the church in purity, the bride of Christ in purity, then one way that God accomplishes that. Is by giving us a strength to suffer well, to trust him through it all. Well, how will I do all these things? How will I be watchful? How will I stand firm in the faith? How will I act courageous and and take uh, sacrificial risks? How will I be strong? Where am I going to get that sort of wherewithal? Do I just sort of muster it up? Am I being told here to forcibly modify my behavior, just buck up and believe No, verse 14 tells us the way. It says, let all that you do be done in love. Love is the motivator. Chapter 13 tells us that when you love someone, you bear everything, you endure everything. You don't approve their wrongdoing and you rejoice in the truth. But only love will give the Corinthians the strength that they need to turn from arrogance and to turn from resentment Their only hope is to relate to each other out of hearts of love that have themselves been renovated by God's love. Well, these commands, having been given Paul, next gives a practical way for the Corinthians to put them to use. He offers a test of love. How are the Corinthians going to respond to Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus? These were the brothers from Corinth who had carried the letter of the Corinthians to Paul and presumably are carrying the letter back to Corinth. And the letter that Paul received contained some specific questions from the whole church, questions about marriage and singleness, questions about food offered to idols, about spiritual gifts, about the collection that we discussed last week. But that's not all that these men, the letter carriers, brought. They also delivered their own personal observations about the problems in Corinth. And that's how Paul picks up on the divisions in the church— and the scandal regarding incest, and the uh, lawsuit between believers, and the abuses of the Lord's Supper. So, if you were one of the arrogant and um, divisive ones in Corinth, you can imagine that these messenger guys maybe wouldn't be so popular upon their return when they they come bearing a letter of rebuke from Paul. It's like tattletales. And consistent with that, you know, they're even among the the people who weren't guilty of of these errors. They may they may have thought like, hey. We may be messy, but it's our mess. You don't need to burden Paul with that. You don't need to hang our dirty laundry out to dry. So Paul preempts any response like that, and he urges the Corinthians to remember the character of these men. The household of Stephanus, they were the, the very first Christians in the whole region. They owed respect. They were owed respect, and they were owed a debt of gratitude because not only had they blazed the trail for the church in Corinth, but they also should be respected because of this very transparency that they had with Paul, because they told Paul the things that needed to be reported truly, because Paul is uniquely positioned to correctly diagnose and truly help the church, whether that process is embarrassing for the church or not. So it was right to give him the full picture. And too often we assume that, well, love just wouldn't do or say something that displeases another. But true love has the other person's best interest in mind. Even if acting on that best interest might strain the relationship or put it at risk. So Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, they traveled to Paul with only the church's best interest in mind. Will the rest of the church return that love when they see the full content of Paul's letter to them? These men served Paul. They they gave him much appreciated company. And they also relieved him of the anxiety of wondering what was going on at Corinth. Are they doing okay? And these men are also going to provide relief to the church at Corinth by bringing Paul's response because um, people need these corrections and they need the comfort also that's in Paul's letter. Will the Corinthians give these servants of the church the recognition they deserve? And similarly, we shouldn't react poorly against someone who attempts to constructively point out the church's sins or areas of needed growth because a church that will only hear good things about itself that's just convinced of its high standing and its own health that's a church that's really in danger critiques that are based in love are golden opportunities to see ourselves more clearly to cut through any sort of poisonous groupthink that might be at work to go to god together in prayer and ask him to shed light on all areas of potential darkness and of course, sometimes the concerned people will maybe be overzealous or maybe misunderstood some circumstances. But if they're truly devoted servants of the church, like these men were, they'll be humble supporters of the process. They won't be hostile enemies while well, things are being looked into. And at the end, everyone's going to have greater clarity because this conversation happened. It's a win-win. Well, these verses 15 to 18 here, they also remind us generally that we should line up behind the servants, line up behind the servants. It's not clear that these men, these three men had any position of authority, any formal position, and yet Paul gives them dignity because they took on this lowly service of carrying the letter, and they took the risks of travel in the ancient world, and they took the time away from home and work, and they were burdens for the church, so they took this burden upon themselves. They weren't interested in their rights, preserving dignity like others. So Paul urges the Corinthians to be subject to people with such character. Remember what they've suffered for the gospel. And you can imagine, similarly in our context, if we have a saint who has cheerfully served others for decades, who's opened their home, who's taken risks and toiled hard, uh, you don't dismiss them easily. They may not have any formal position in the church, but you listen when they speak. In people like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, we have an example of chapter 13, verse 5. It says, Love does not seek its own interests. So honor people like that. In verses 19 to 20, we see a way to love, a way to love, and that's greeting one another with affection. We read, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So, greetings from the church in Asia. This is not talking about the continent of Asia. It's talking about the Roman province of Asia, which is roughly equivalent to modern-day Turkey. And it had Ephesus as its capital, the very city from which Paul was uh, ministering at that time. So that's why he's sending them greetings from Asia. And it's cool that the churches had these sorts of relationships, even across great distances. It's a reminder to us that we should have open hearts to Christians everywhere. And the next greetings are from Aquila and Prisca. We need to take a little bit of time to talk about them. This married couple is amazing. We hear about them also in the book of Romans and the book of Acts. Basically, they were Jews who had come to Christ in Rome long before Paul ever made his way there. But then they had to leave Rome. They were expelled with all the Jews in AD 49 when Claud- Claudius made a decree that expelled all the Jews from Rome. Um, and interestingly, that, that he, he did that because of disturbances related to the message of Christ. <laughs> so then Aquila and Prisca, they leave Rome where they grew up and they set up shop in Corinth where they were tent makers or leather workers. Paul seems to have met them in the marketplace shortly thereafter and he stays with them and he works with them and then together the three of them plant the church at Corinth. Here though, in these verses, Paul refers to them having a house church in Ephesus. So they must have moved over there to help Paul in the ministry in Ephesus. But even before the church really took off in Ephesus, Aquila and Prisca met a young man in the synagogue a man named Apollos. He was trying to teach about Jesus, but he didn't quite have all the pieces lined up. So Prisca and Aquila took him aside and they explained the way of God to him more accurately. And it's from there that Apollos was let loose with all of his knowledge and his eloquence to, to um, bolster the churches at Ephesus and at Corinth. So in Aquila and Prisca, we see that together they mentored a gifted teacher, They showed great hospitality. They saw their role in spreading the gospel as more important than even having a stable home or a business in a fixed location. They embraced transition and hardship as just lay people in the cause of Christ. So Paul writes to the Romans that Aquila and Prisca, quote, risked their neck for my life. We don't even know what that means. Um, He says, all the churches of the Gentiles owe them thanks. All the churches of the Gentiles. Technically, that includes us. Wow. Um, so what happened at Ephesus that, that they risked their neck for Paul's life? We don't know. It could be that they saved him from the riots that were happening there. At any rate, in the end, Aquila and Prisca end up in Rome. That's why Paul can greet them there as well. Um, maybe because of whatever happened in Ephesus, it was time to go back to Rome. So this is this is a really... Uh, tough and courageous couple and it must have been an encouragement for the Corinthians to hear hearty greetings from them and keeping their example in mind would definitely help the church at Corinth and it'll help us too they'd made a living uh, with the tent making, leather working that was a hard trade it was serious work and yet they were first and foremost Christians They had no seminary degrees, no titles or official roles, but their labors are such that just a mere mention of their greeting would do much to realign the church at Corinth. Beyond Aquila and Prisca, also we read that all the brothers send you greetings. And all these greetings should have um, helped the Corinthians to remember, hey, we need to greet one another also. Paul suggests, greet one another with a holy kiss. And this is mentioned also, the holy kiss is mentioned in four other books of the Bible. So the point, don't get hung up on the kiss, okay? The point was an affectionate greeting that was appropriate to the culture. So we can give a hug, a handshake, a hearty smile, slap on the back. My personal favorite, the awkward head nod. Um, Don't be creepy, but be genuinely happy to see one another and just be warm in how you show that. You know, people in our society are increasingly isolated. Really, have you noticed this? Our lives are increasingly isolated, and we're increasingly unfamiliar with innocent touch or with sincere greetings. And so the church is to be a place where things are different. And this sort of greeting goes a long way in preventing factions too because our greetings cross social divides and they cross life groups and they cross age groups and they cross demographic groups. Demonstrating, we're demonstrating that we have been reconciled to each other in Christ. That's the message. So even as you greet one another, you can be thinking in your head, you know, even though I am so very different from this person, we have an unbreakable relationship because we're brought together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the the beauty of greetings in the church. Well, next we see a warning of love, verses 21 to 22. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Now, the point of verse 21 is mostly just to offer proof that the letter was genuine. This was a day when people would often employ uh, letter writers, so they called them uh, amanuensises, um, and they would have like really nice handwriting, okay, and you could just dictate to them, and they'd write the letter down, but then if you wanted to, at the very end of the letter, you could pick up the pen yourself and write the last part in your own handwriting, and whoever received the letter, if they're familiar with your handwriting, then this assures them, okay, this letter is genuine, no one's like pulling a prank on me here, And uh, Paul frequently had people writing down his own letters. Sometimes he even mentions the person by name. He mentions Tertius in Romans. And we think that maybe 1 Corinthians was recorded by Sosthenes, who is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. So Paul establishes the authenticity of the letter, and then Paul has a very important thought for them to absorb. And he takes the time to write it with his own hand. It still seems a little bit out of nowhere he expresses, if anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. Whoa, like we were just getting greetings from Aquila and Prisca, and now this seems really heavy. Um, It does function like a warning, but it's really more of like a solemn curse or a prayer of condemnation. And I hope we see that it's perfectly fitting in the midst of this dirty church. I want to show you how. Let's think back to all the messed up stuff that's been addressed in this book. Why would someone flaunt their sexual sin? Why would someone sue another Christian? Why would someone eat in an idol's temple? Why would someone make the Lord's Supper a time for selfishness and status statements? Why would someone hold the church hostage by insisting that the exercise of their gifts be given priority? Why would someone deny the general resurrection? Well, the answer to all these questions on our tour through 1 Corinthians is either A, there is incredible, even stunning, ignorance about God's character, ignorance about his design for his church. And if that's the case, then this ignorance should begin to get cleared up because Paul is writing this letter, and he has very clear responses to all of these issues. So if it's ignorance, well, we'll see. But the other option, B, There's not ignorance. There's just a fundamental lack of love for God. And the scary thing is that we may not be able to tell the difference. If it's ignorance and if it's the the remnants of worldly thinking in true Christians, well, that will be slowly burned away by continued exposure to God's people and God's word. But if it's an absence for the love of God, This is often camouflaged by Christian-sounding talk and a groomed, righteous image. And only time can unmask and expose the faker. And only time reveals the one who is actually, however slowly, being sanctified. Even the Apostle Paul can't know for sure who belongs to God and who is a tear among the wheat. And so he sends this shot across the bow of the ship Of hidden apostasy and he says if anyone has no love for the Lord let him be accursed what should be our response to this sort of statement quite frankly it it should make a little part of us soil our pants and then as we reflect on it it leads to one of two responses either a we're going to be offended by this statement and our hearts are going to be hardened And we're going to actually prove that we have no love for the Lord. Or we're led by warnings like this to a right fear of the Lord, which leads us to rediscover the beauty of the gospel, which makes us gratefully cling to our Lord, which proves that we do have love for the Lord. So just to be clear here, Paul is not railing against people who haven't heard the gospel and who haven't even been introduced to what it means that Jesus is the Christ. He's railing against those who falsely take upon themselves the Lord's name while not loving him from the heart. He's talking to pretenders and hypocrites who trouble the churches for the sake of their own egos or some sort of this-worldly gain. So warnings like this protect the true church. They call back the wayward ones from their apathy. They fix us firmly on the path of perseverance. So while this may seem like just an angry outburst from Paul, it's actually an expression of love for God and of love for the church. And it's also just a statement of fact. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as if we're in a neutral world, that God just strangely interrupts from time to time with uh, his curses or blessings, but actually... No, we're in God's world, and we've been partaking of blessings our whole life. We were given everything good as well as His scriptures. And how will we respond to this clear revelation? No one can serve two masters. Now throughout this letter, Paul has preached the message of the cross. He's preached it through many issues. He's preached it in many ways. And so now, at the end of the letter, he's essentially asking, "Are you in or are you out?" And I want to say, if anyone here today doesn't know the answer to that question, please don't leave without talking to me or to someone else. I want to help you sort through that. I want to pray with you. This warning is here so that you can flee from the pretender's curse and run toward the God of all blessing. And so it's natural what comes next. He says, our Lord come. Together with that previous statement, these words help to complete a warning that the event is certain and near when each one of us will give account of himself to God and then the heartbreaking landscape of false Christians will be resolved once and for all at his return. And the Lord who comes is going to say either, go from me, you who bear the curse. I never knew you despite all the ways that you grandstanded and claimed that you knew me or he will say, Come to me, you who bear the blessing. No matter how broken and messy and ashamed you have been, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's not a question of performance. It's not a question of who's good enough. Any righteousness we have only comes from Christ. The difference is between those who abuse the good news of his mercy and those who desperately cling to it. Our Lord, come. This is another measure of who is in and who is out. What do you hope for? Do you long for his return? If the sky split open right now, would you be thrilled? In some of his last correspondence, the Apostle Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So this is a gut-level cry of God's people. Our Lord, come. Is it your cry? Do you really believe that your greatest good is to be in his presence forever? And finally, we get to the closing blessing of love, and he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, the word grace has become so familiar to us in our Christianese lingo that we sometimes forget what it actually represents, and we start to think of it just as some general term for good stuff. But grace has some specific connotations that we shouldn't forget. Grace means favor, and it means a kind disposition from God. Grace means that God is going to do and give what we cannot do and get for ourselves So grace means you're on a certain trajectory where a good thing is not going to happen, but God interrupts that trajectory in a definitive way. That is grace. It's grace that enables us to love. It's a gift. And Paul always ends his letters with some mention of grace because without the work of God on our behalf, we can do nothing. Grace marks this epistle from the beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to the end here. Now, in addition to the grace of God, Paul's Christ-like love embraced them all. We read that. And even the ones who had been causing so much chaos in the church, Paul makes sure that they know they are included in his love. Nowhere else in all of Paul's letters do we see him go so far to assure the letters recipients of his love And I think that's helpful for us to see, that if you want Christians to grow in love, which Paul clearly wants the Corinthians to grow in love, then it's modeled for us that the, the best method to do that is to assure them that they are loved. They are loved. Love isn't just something that we can conjure up within ourselves. It's the overflow of the love that we've been shown in Christ. So the more that that reality really hits home with us, The more true affection we naturally feel and express toward others as well. So I just want to ask you, church, do you know that you are loved in Christ Jesus? Paul offered his love in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm no apostle, I'm not the founder of this church, though I know Robert's love remains with you as well. But you have my love. You have my love. And even if my personality may not be as outwardly affectionate, I hope that my love will point you to the love of God and his power to transform you into someone who truly loves self-sacrificially. In Christ Jesus are the last words of this letter. And they're the last words for any of us, really. I mean, will our church be a place of beauty and life and transformation? Only in Christ Jesus. So that's what we need. We need less of ourselves, less of our egos, our priorities, our perceived needs and rights. We need more of Christ Jesus. So, almighty God, we pray for just that. We pray for more of Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this glorious book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for your faithfulness in bringing us all the way through. And we pray that the lessons from this book would be more and more seared upon our hearts. That you'd bring these various discussions and sections to our memory. That we would see the application more and more as we live this life. That we, our memories would go back to, to this or that chapter and think through those issues again. Let this be just the start of your use of this book in our lives. And Lord, I pray that all the things that you were getting after in the lives of the Corinthians, that you would get after those in our lives as well. I pray that you would give us right doctrine, that you give us strong hope in our resurrection, that you would give us moral purity, that you would free us from flirting with idolatry, that you would make us flexible in our love for others, that we would know how to bend our own rights in order to serve and love them. In short, we ask that you would make us more like Christ. Take away any inclinations toward pride or competition or rivalry. Unify us in the one gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.